2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. This hour, we're going to talk with Tracy Doherty. She is the director of the Freedom Challenge. And you may not be aware of the fact that there's a Freedom Challenge right here in the Pacific Northwest. In fact, there are a couple of them. You want to make sure you know about it and what the uh, charter of the Freedom Challenge is, challenging women to support women uh, who are Sex trafficked or in modern day slavery. Tracy Doherty will join us later this hour. We're also going to give away our um, certificate from unplanned or rather for unplanned. It's a Fandango gift certificate. We'll be giving away one in each of the two hours. So listen up for your opportunity to win that twenty five dollar Uh, Gift certificate as well. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakowski. He's the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about his view that Democrats are wrong to demand the full, unredacted Mueller report. Um, Not because he doesn't think they should have it, but federal law prohibits grand jury information from being made public. And they have to look uh, through the the report for anything that could uh, affect national security, reveal intelligence methods and so on that they cannot by law be disclosed. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, the theatrics of what's going on around the Mueller report, which we've been told by the attorney general should be made available uh, by mid-April. That's about a week, if not sooner. So we'll talk with him about that. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, uh, there have been three more women who have come forward suggesting that uh, the former vice president creeped them out by being too close. If Joe Biden thought a video addressing the allegations of inappropriate behavior towards women would quash the um, the scandal, although scandal might be too strong a word, and enable him to focus on the possibility of launching his 2020 presidential campaign, he was mistaken. Well, hours after he appeared on video to promise he be more mindful, as he put it, about others' personal space. Three more women went public on Wednesday to claim that the former vice president had touched them inappropriately. All three said Biden's video didn't go far enough. My guess is, in the Me Too era and in the highly charged political climate, uh, he could not go far enough to satisfy uh, some on that end of the ledger. A previous Biden accuser, writer D.J. Hill, said that uh, Uh, that she went public with her claims because she was inspired by other women who have come forward and the cultural shift that's been long overdue. A total of seven women have now accused Biden of inappropriate conduct. Uh, They did not say that it was sexually motivated, but it made them feel very uncomfortable and was inappropriate, particularly in the setting that they found themselves in with the senator vice president. Well, a key Democrat who heads the powerful House Ways and Means Committee has formally requested the IRS provide six years of President Trump's personal and business tax returns. And the president has responded. Is that all? Usually it's 10, he said. Well, the request Wednesday by U.S. Representative Richard Neal from Massachusetts, who heads the Tax Writing House Ways and Means Committee, is the first demand for a sitting president tax information in 45 years. The move sets up a virtually uh, certain legal showdown with the White House as uh, Trump has refused the request, saying he is under audit. Now, what they're relying on is an IRS rule that says every sitting president's taxes are audited, and they're suggesting they need to make sure the IRS is doing that. And therefore, to confirm that the IRS is living up to its legal requirement, they need to see the president's tax returns for years that uh, predate his election as well as the current tax years. Virginia Lieutenant Governor has released polygraph results. The embattled Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax yesterday released the results of a polygraph test. He said he took in response to two accusations of sexual misconduct by two separate women. Today, I'm providing the full report of my polygraphed examinations to the media so that all Virginians can read the report themselves, he said in a news conference held in his office. Fairfax again denied the accusation, saying they are incredibly hurtful to me and my family and my reputation, which I have spent a, a lifetime building. Fairfax's two accusers uh, both spoke out in national interviews with Gail King that aired on CBS this morning, earlier this week. And there's some wringing of the hands as to what to do, because the next in line for power with the embattled leaders there would be a Republican. And apparently nobody wants that, at least among these three leaders. Former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams questioned the legitimacy of her 2018 loss during an event in New York City on Wednesday, saying she refuses to concede the race to Republican Governor Brian Kemp while accusing the GOP of stealing the election. Now, there's no dispute about the number of votes went for one or the other, but she's suggesting there was an effort to suppress the vote. She said, despite the final tally and the inauguration of Governor Brian Kemp and the situation we find ourselves in, I do have a very affirmative statement to make. We won. She took the crowd at the annual convention of the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Um, She lost to Kemp by more than 54,000 votes, but has repeatedly refused to concede the outcome. She is not going to occupy the governor's chair. She cannot challenge the vote again. So delusional might be the word that that fits. You might recall Stacey Abrams is the individual that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden had suggested he might – recruit for his running mate to run as number two. She has since said she's not interested. Hollywood actress Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman appeared in Boston Federal Court yesterday for hearings on their alleged roles in the college admissions scandal that outraged the nation a few weeks ago. Neither Laughlin nor Huffman were asked to enter pleas in their respective cases, and neither of them publicly addressed the allegations they face. Laughlin and her fashion designer husband um, are accused of paying bribes to get their two daughters into the University of Southern California. Huffman is accused of paying $15,000 disguised as a tax-deductible charitable donation so her daughter could take part in an apparently rigged, uh, rigged college entrance exam. Joe Biden, as a possible 2020, um, is being castigated by his party. Uh, earlier today, Howard Schultz, who is the uh, Former CEO of Starbucks is being interviewed about his possible role as an independence and the uh, the politics of the 2020 presidential election continues. Well, CVE Technology Group, Inc. in Allen, Texas, was raided this week by Immigration and Customs Enforcement which apprehended more than 280 illegal immigrant employees. Special Agent Katrina Berger revealed, as far as immigration-related arrests, this is the largest ICE workshop operation at one site in the last 10 years. According to an ICE news release, all of the immigration status violators will be interviewed by ICE staff to record any medical a sole caregiver or other humanitarian situations. Based on these interviews, ICE will determine if those arrested remain in custody or are considered for humanitarian release. In all cases, all illegal aliens encountered will be fingerprinted and processed for removal from the United States. End quote. And after reviewing the circumstances behind the recent Boeing 737 Max crash, Ethiopia says the pilots acted appropriately. As Bloomberg reports, pilots on a doomed Ethiopian Airlines flight followed proper procedures and still couldn't bring the 737 MAX out of a dive. Ethiopia's transport minister said pressing the manufacturer Boeing Company to fix flight controls to avoid further disaster. Market analyst Michael Hewson suggested they're saying that the pilots were not to blame. It places much more scrutiny on Boeing's processes. Now, I've since heard that the pilots had turned off a system that is troubling, and the difficulty came when they turned that system back on, which should never be done. It's rebooting, and that, uh, that action was responsible, but again, back and forth on what actually happened and who's responsible for the outcome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Tracy Doherty. She's the director of the Freedom Challenge. There's one coming to the Pacific Northwest, and this is an opportunity for women to challenge themselves in support of women and children who are sex trafficked or are victims of modern day slavery. We'll talk with her about that and an exciting opportunity for you to be involved. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show In our next segment, we'll talk with Tracy Doherty. She's the California director of the Freedom Challenge. There's a Freedom Challenge Pacific Northwest coming up. We'll make sure you get all the important details. And before we return to the news, I want to give you an opportunity to win a $25 Fandango gift certificate to see the movie Unplanned in theaters right now. KPDQ, along with Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk, are giving away a pair of tickets to see this powerful pro-life film. Dr. Dobson has been leading the conversation on this very serious and difficult subject for more than 40 years, and we're pleased that uh, you can listen to him on Family Talk every weekday right here on KPDQ from 3 to 3.30 p.m. But we'd like to give away our first of two today, uh, certificates for the movie Unplanned. We'll give that away to caller number two, and the number to call, 800 800-845-2162. That's 800-845-2162. This is our first certificate today. We'll be giving away a second in the 5 o'clock hour. And again, that telephone number, 800-845-2162. $25 Fandango gift certificate to see the movie Unplanned in theaters now. Well, thousands of Amazon workers will be pulled out of Seattle over the coming years as a consequence of the animus that developed between the corporation and the city. The transferees will be moved to Bellevue. The foundation for the exodus was laid in 2018 when a city councilwoman sought to impose a hefty head tax on large corporations. The idea was eventually gnashed, or rather quashed, but the um, uh, there was some gnashing of teeth, however, but the damage was done. Amazon's expansive uh, plans were suspended, a decision that prompted the uh, pugnacious councilwoman to further criticize Amazon, Jeff Bezos, evidently decided not to put up with it anymore. Employees will be moving to Bellevue. And good news from the heartland. In Tuesday's Wisconsin Supreme Court election, conservatives appear to have scored a shocking upset victory with only a handful of precincts left to report. Conservative-backed Brian Hagdorn leads uh, Liberal-backed Lisa Neuerbauer by nearly 6,000 votes, Out of 1.2 million cast, according to unofficial results. If Hagdorn's lead holds, he'll replace retiring liberal Justice Shirley Abramson, increasing the Wisconsin Supreme Court's conservative majority from four to three. To five to two. In Wisconsin, justices are elected to 10 year terms, so Hagdorn's victory uh, could solidify that majority for years to come. And in nanny state news for legislation, um, two New York City council members have announced plans for legislation to place a fee on paper shopping bags. The proposal follows the states banning most single-use plastic bags beginning next March. Under the new law, each uh, municipality has the option of imposing a five-cent fee on paper bags. The goal of the fee is to encourage people to shift to reusable bags. We'll see how that goes there. And there's an update uh, from across the pond. MPs, um, those are uh, leaders in the parliament, Uh, have narrowly approved a bill which compels Theresa May to seek a further extension of Article 50 to prevent a no-deal Brexit on 12 April. Well, the bill requires the government to bring a legally binding vote to the Commons, seeking an extension to Article 50, where MPs will be able to determine the length of the extension. However, this does not bind the European Union to the decision who could reject the outcome of the vote and not uh, offer an extension. We'll see what happens there. Well... Taking a look at um, 1968 on this day, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., then 39, is shot and killed while standing on a balcony of the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. Suspected gunman James Earl Ray later would plead guilty to assassinating Dr. King, but then spent the rest of his life claiming he'd been the victim of a setup. And on this day in 1976, the film All the President's Men, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, as Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, has its world premiere in Washington, D.C. And on this day back in 1983, the space shuttle Challenger roars into orbit on its maiden voyage. Doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but it was. Well, President Trump today said that he was giving Mexico a one-year warning to stop the flow of uh, migrants and drugs into the U.S., or he would slap tariffs on cars made there And close the southern border. We're going to give them a one year warning. And if the drugs don't stop or largely stop, we're going to put tariffs on the country, on its products, in particular cars, he told reporters at the White House. And if that doesn't stop the drugs, we'll close the border. He said that Mexico had unbelievable and powerful immigration laws and that such a threat would be a powerful incentive for it to act. The warning is a step back from the threat he issued last week when he threatened to close the border, although it's still part of what he's suggesting could happen uh, if uh, Mexico does not respond. Uh, on Tuesday, he his stance appeared to soften when he told reporters that Mexico had started to Taking further measures to stop migrants traveling into the United States and White House officials said the closing of the border was one of uh, a number of options on the table. So Mexico has, as of yesterday, made a big difference. You'll see that because few people, if any, are coming up, he said. Uh, on Tuesday, well, Trump also faced opposition from members of his own party, including Senator John Cornyn, who had warned that closing the border would have unintended consequences. On Thursday, the president said he fully intended to carry out his threat, but added the one year delay as well as the additional threat to put tariffs on cars should um, mitigate having to close the border at all. Meanwhile, Obama-era Border Patrol Chief Mark Morgan sounded the alarm Thursday on the crisis at the southern border, testifying before Congress that the crisis is at a magnitude never seen in modern times and urging lawmakers to act to stop what he described as a virtual open border policy. We're experiencing a crisis at the southern border at a magnitude never seen in modern times. It's unprecedented, Morgan said. He served as the head of U.S. Border Patrol during the Obama administration, speaking to the Senate home Homeland Security Committee. He made the remarks after Customs and Border Protection uh, uh, said that more than 76,000 migrants were detained in February, the highest number of apprehensions in 12 years, and were on pace for more than 100,000 apprehensions in March. The uh, surge in numbers has led the president, who declared a national emergency on the border in February, to threaten to close the border. We've already described how that has since been modified. Well, shortly before special counsel Robert Mueller filed his report on the Russia investigation last month, Senators Chuck Grassley, a Republican out of Iowa, and uh, Lindsey Graham uh, out of South Carolina alerted Attorney General Bill Barr of what they described as the selective use of emails in Mueller's court filings, as well as potential improper political influence, misconduct, and mismanagement in the FBI's original Russia probe. On a March 8th letter, Grassley and Graham referred Barr to a letter sent to Mueller in late 2017... That alleged his investigation had cherry-picked details from emails to include in court documents, urging him to review the materials. They also notified him that they had asked Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz a year earlier to review the original FBI probe. It's unclear if Barr reviewed the senator's letters. A DOJ representative declined to comment on the missive. But it's uh, been told that, that lawmakers wanted Barr to have this material before he reviewed the Mueller report. Out of concern, some emails were selectively quoted to give a nefarious impression. Well, as we have mentioned before, the Attorney General has promised that the full report, the redacted version of it, will explain why that has to be done when we talk with Hans von Spakovsky later in the 5 o'clock hour, uh, sometime by the middle of the month and perhaps earlier. So we'll see what... uh transpires. Coming up, we're going to talk with Tracy Doherty. She's the uh, director of the Freedom Challenge in California, the Pacific Northwest. And you may not be aware of the fact that there's a challenge to women right here in the Pacific Northwest, a couple of opportunities to challenge yourself and shine a very bright light uh, on the uh, difficulty of sex trafficking and uh, modern day slavery and actually do something about it. So that's coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show about 35 minutes after four o'clock is our time. And I know many of you attended the uh, uh, missions conference that takes place in January, Mission Connection, and you had the opportunity to hear briefly from Tracy Doherty. She also presented a workshop there to talk about the Freedom Challenge. Well, she and I had the opportunity to connect, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to learn more about the Freedom Challenge, not just in general, but the f- challenge that has been extended to women right here in the Pacific Northwest and to Events uh, that you are invited to participate in. So, Tracy, it's a delight to have you back here in the Portland area and to have you here in studio.
3: Thank you, Georgine. I'm happy to be here.
2: Now, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the Freedom Challenge. So, let's begin at the beginning. I know this is a movement uh, of passionate women who are dedicating to shining a bright light on sex trafficking and modern day slavery. But it really is more than that.
3: Yes, it, it's much more than that. We want to challenge women to do good. By helping uh, enslaved women and children to do more than they ever thought physically possible, and then to do it together in community, so there's this dual freedom that happens—sisters for sisters.
2: They're challenging themselves, experiencing something perhaps of what women who are not free are experiencing, and at the same time, providing material support to help liberate them from their situation.
3: Absolutely, it's testing physical limits. It's put. It's really wrecking yourself physically with each other. And um, I would even explain it as a physical intercessory prayer of sorts. Mm. Absolutely.
2: Now this really began when the founder of Freedom Challenge, in fact, I think it had a slightly different name at the time, was confronted by a fear that had prevented her from reaching the summit of a mountain that she had attempted to summit many times. She She heard a challenge that led her Uh, to a final attempt in which he was successful, and that really sparked this movement.
3: Yeah, it did. Her name was Kathy Anderson, and she was actually climbing Mount Whitney, which is one of the tallest freestanding mountains in the United States, and she just had this image from the Lord. What would this look like if I could bring other women with me to overcome their fear, and then also in doing so, do it for others? And so she made that summit, And over a course of time, uh, launched the Freedom Challenge. So she overcame something, and she had a desire to see other women overcome their fears. And fear is such a big part of women's lives. So when they can even overcome something simple like that, it affects and impacts their entire life.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because uh, it is such an interesting connection where you are facing something, a challenge that may seem overwhelming, Mm -hmm. that requires uh, everything that you have to complete and at the same time, draws you closer to those who are in situations and circumstances uh, where they have no freedom.
3: Yeah, especially in the um, Western world, we don't often get ourselves physically challenged. We get very comfortable as women and as Christians. So when you are um, women of every background, you know, uh, wealthy, educated, moms, young, old, doing something together that you need each other and you need God and um, you, are, you are really being pressed to the limit, there's something of, of humility that comes upon you that um, changes you and uh, causes this great identification to women who don't have options. And so there's this solidarity of sorts that happens with the women and for the women that are represented all over the world that we don't have contact with, but it's it's almost a point of contact, Mm -hmm. of solidarity. Mm -hmm.
2: Now, give us an example of uh, a freedom challenge that women have come together uh, to face and then ultimately have an impact on women they may never meet face to face.
3: Yeah. So I'll do the most recent challenge, which was in October. We had... Just about 40 women who went um, what we called a survival trip through the Grand Canyon. So these women were carrying 55 pounds on their back. They were trekking through the Grand Canyon, which is treacherous at times, setting up their tents, making their own food, just everything to take care of your life and each other. And as they did that, they each had to raise $5,000. We asked them to not just write a check, to actually amplify their voice. Tell the story of women and children that can't. And then in doing so, they are together out um, in that, you know, pretty brutal environment, and they are helping each other get through that atmosphere. So I was there, I could tell you it was one of the hardest challenges I've been in. I actually had a fever 102 degrees oh my out goodness. in the middle of this. Crazy challenge. And I had women that were carrying my ration of water, 10 pounds of water, taking 10 pounds out of my bag and carrying it for me. So here's this sisterhood happening. Humility, you know, humbling for me to actually allow these women to do this for me and to help me. Actually, the only way out is out and through. So they were helping me get out and through. So And there's, you know, the spiritual component is um, weaved through all of that. We have our spiritual Sherpas out there on those trails that are helping, um, you know, bring back that biblical narrative of biblical justice Mm -hmm. and how that looks from what we're experiencing.
2: Oh, it just sounds amazing. And there's so many objects lessons with what you've just shared, just a small part of what you experienced there. Now, I imagine some of the women listening are thinking, okay, they're looking for uh, Olympic athletes, they're looking for women who work out 10, you know, 12 hours <laughs> a day. Um, describe the kind of women that are part of this challenge, because I think we'd all be surprised to learn that women are really challenging themselves in ways that aren't necessarily familiar or comfortable.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm going to give myself as the poster child for that. So <laughs> I am a, I'm a girl's girl. I mean, I, I like my heels. And when God called me into this, this is the truth. I did not have a pair of workout shoes. This was my secret. I did not take care of my body. I did not exercise. But I felt God was calling me into this. And on my first hike, I the only shoes I could find were my daughter's cheer shoes. And so off I go, you know, and years um, now, five years later, God has me sitting here in this place directing this ministry. So Um, The idea is not being an athlete. The idea is putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And of course, we make provision for that through instruction and training and different levels of what would be safe and inappropriate um, for a woman who would come. And we're very clear um, this level athleticism is needed for this event. Mm -hmm. But we really do make provision for all types of women to come. And that's what makes it exciting. We we actually had a woman who was 85 years old participate two years ago. Her name was Shannon. She's a nurse, 85 years old. And man, I walked with her a good portion of the time. What a remarkable woman who taught us so much about hmm. resilience and perseverance and continuing on, not just retiring her heart for Jesus and for the hurting as she got older. Quite a remarkable woman.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now... There's an event that's coming up, in fact, a couple of them here in the Pacific Northwest, and I want to talk about that. But let me ask you, how does an experience like that, where you are challenged in that kind of dramatic way, how does that change you? How does that inform your faith? And how does that uh, change your perspective on women around the world who don't have the freedom that we enjoy?
3: Yeah, well, first off, my passion is to see these ideas of social justice align with biblical justice, bringing this narrative that social justice God is the one who came up with this restoration of lives. So that's the first piece. Um, Women are learning as they're there. So we create an avenue for that to happen through a journal, through prayer times, through hearing the stories of other women, real life women who um, are, or children, who have been caught or have been um, rehabilitated through one of our programs, through prayer, Uh, through the opportunity then to go and see where all of those funds have impacted lives. We often will bring survivors on those trips with us Mm. who will walk and tell their stories. So there's really a deep, empathetic connection to those lives when they can see the resilience, the ability to have this God-given resilience that God puts in every person in all situations We'll often bring women and survivors from the projects around the world to share and to actually, again, walk with the ladies and um, get to know them. And there's something really powerful that happens when you are walking with someone who has gone through something like that. It's now not just a number. Oh, 40 million people are enslaved. It becomes a name.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It,
3: it becomes not just a status, but a person that you had fellowship with. So we weave that into that experience so that women can, um, you know, enter in.
2: Mm. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, the Freedom Challenge Pacific Northwest. And we want to encourage you to think perhaps a, a bit out of the box um, and be challenged in your thinking that could lead you to being a part of a Freedom Challenge. So we'll continue our conversation with Tracy Doherty, who's the director of the Freedom Challenge in, uh, in the California area. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back 50 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show carrying on a conversation with Tracy Doherty. She's the director of the Freedom Challenge. And I wanted to talk about the Freedom Challenge here in the Pacific Northwest, giving women in my community an opportunity to engage in the kind of challenge that you described. Let's talk about what's happening here this summer.
3: Yes. So this summer, Mount Hood, Oregon, July 8th through 13th. This is a challenge that will have three levels for women to participate in. So if ladies are already shutting down going, that's not me, there'll be some that will doing not um, the summit itself because that time frame will not um, allow that, but doing as high as you can without summiting Three different levels and experiencing a conference as well where there's an educational piece and then the ability at the end to assimilate all the things that were learned Mm -hmm. and gathered and specifically lots of prayer happening around um, the lives of women and children around the world. So there's an invitation into intentional prayer as they do the challenge
2: Now, one of the things that we talked about during the break was the fact that you have spiritual Sherpas. This is a very intentional group, and this is designed to help us to glean everything that God would teach us along the way, that we would learn from one another as we travel this challenge together. Talk a little bit about the the spiritual Sherpa and how they encourage women um, to look for what God is saying and also to come alongside one another.
3: So a Sherpa is something that's used. We've done Kilimanjaro and Mount Everest, if you can believe it. These women have done both of those. And a Sherpa is often the guide that comes to bring you safely to all the summits and the logistics of that trail. So we decided that not only did we need a logistical guide, which we have, someone who ensures the safety and the guidance of the women practically, so we're not just out there doing our own thing, but the spiritual Sherpa acts to create a spiritual summit for these women. So there's a team of women around the U.S. who put together um, very customized spiritual journey for these women. So we use um, prayer points. Uh, we have a journal that um, causes reflection and um, thought-provoking questions that allow the women to actually just examine their own heart and what they're doing And um, just creates a spiritual journey for them. That's one of the most exciting things is that we really want to align, as I said before, this social justice. We're doing good for women and children, but also biblical justice, that there's a restorative part to our own hearts as we make this journey alongside God and others.
2: Now, for women in this listening audience who are interested in what you've just described, What's the best way for them to learn more, to say, yes, I'm in, and, and all of that?
3: So the best way to do that is to go to our website, thefreedomchallenge.com. Very simple, thefreedomchallenge.com. And on there, they will be able to register for an event, ask questions, see videos, see the history. They can call our office, and we'd be happy to guide them, ask answer questions, give them their gear list. And once you sign up, we start a journey with you, which is going to be first amplifying your voice on behalf of other women and children, which believe it or not, sometimes women are more fearful about the idea of asking and inviting people into this journey with them for support than they are even the physical. Hmm. So really, the challenge begins the moment you sign up. The moment you sign up, you're getting people praying with you, partnering with you, you're doing peer. Uh, raising and um, we are guiding you along the way. So we have a group of women who love to coach and encourage the women on this overcoming fear from beginning to end and all between.
2: Now this journey to um, Mount hood, that's taking place in July What's the time frame in terms of? Yeah, I'm going to do this, or I need to spend some time thinking about it. And how how soon, how long do they have to actually sign on?
3: Our registration is ending um, the the first week in May, I believe it's May 10th. So we don't have that much time. We've got a whole month. But what I find with women is they immediately are connected to it. They feel a sense of draw, and they just need to take the step. Yeah, it's the truth, and God meets them. There has not been one time where there isn't a woman who hasn't made a goal, who um, hasn't—they have made their summit. There have been women who have not completely summited. But even in that, there's something that happens that's this exchange that God gives them in their own sense of disappointment. I missed. I didn't get there. But God works something in them in all of those circumstances. So may— and then the journey begins. As a community, you'll start interacting with prayer team members that will start praying for you and other ways to network with other sisters who will be joining on that same challenge.
2: Now, one of the things you said earlier, if I'm not mistaken, is that you help them to, to train, to prepare for the trip. We're not talking about you need to run five miles a day, but you help to prepare them for the challenge that they have uh, signed on to.
3: So we have a training guide, and that training guide is quite extensive. It's a physical, um, here's how you prepare for what you need to do. It would include, in this case, um, getting yourself used to some uh, elevation. And if you're someone who lives in Florida, which you you know we have people from all over the world, they'll get, uh, there's elevation masks, oxygenated masks that you can now get to train with to help you feel the, um, mm-hmm. the training in elevation. So- We began to send out videos, tips, encouragement, and really doing the training in community with friends involves people with you as well. So we have people that have husbands, children, friends at church that began to come alongside for those weekly hikes that um, increase in intensity until you arrive.
2: We're talking about young women and old women, middle-aged women. Um, You were talking about uh, you and I were talking about your daughter who was uh, part of one of these challenges. We're talking about people who are thin, people who are not so thin, just a collection of women who have made the commitment to challenge themselves. And at the same time, focus on the challenge that women around the world face when they are sex trafficked or they're modern day uh, slaves. I know there's a four pronged uh, approach to freeing women and children. That's what the Freedom Challenge does in not only um, challenging the women who are part of these events, but also focusing on uh, the needs of others?
3: Yes. So through the years, we have supported around 45 different projects that have had to do with either the prevention of human enslavement, the development of women who and children that would cause them to not go down that pathway, the rescuing and the restoration. So all of the things that the funds that the women support go toward projects that would reflect those sorts of agreements. And of course, it's connected with operation mobilization. So we are the female engagement to very well-established, locally-led ministries, which is powerful. We don't want to come in and say, here is how you solve this. Every um, project, in every country has a way that God is depositing in them. Mm-hmm to solve what is uniquely happening there. So that's our four-pronged approach. Right now, this year, we are supporting uh, the country of Bangladesh, Moldova, Philippines, and Malawi. All um, various um, projects within those countries and all of the funding will go toward those projects this year in Mm -hmm. 2019.
2: Now, for the women who are listening and thinking, you know, that's something I'd like to do, but I really, I don't want to go by myself. I, I don't know anybody else who would want to take on the challenge with me. What do you say to that individual who doesn't necessarily have a a, a collection of women who might want to take on the same challenge, but feel like, I, I can't do this on my own?
3: I can tell you that we've had many women who have courageously through the years come on their own. So first of all, I would say, don't let that stop you because the moment That you register, there's going to be a group of people who will be coming around you even virtually through Zoom, through all the amazing uh, electronic vices that we have now. But the moment you step foot into the actual challenge, you are put in a smaller team of women. So that particular woman would be put on a team with 10 other women and she will leave there feeling close and connected with them.
2: Now, once again, if you are interested in more information, and I hope you will be, uh, you can go to thefreedomchallenge.com. dot com. You can get more information, have your questions answered, you can sign up, and uh, all of that. This is such a unique approach to ministry; it's um, it's unique, and I can see how women could benefit uh, in some pretty dramatic ways by participating in this event. Now, again, we're talking about July and you have until the first week of May to sign up for the Mount Hood um, event. There will be others around the world and across the country, so you can check that out as well. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, helping us better understand the Freedom Challenge and extend the invitation.
3: Yes, I am honored to be here. And Georgine, I'm hoping you're going to join
2: me at Mount Hood. <laughs> it certainly sounds enticing. Yes. Thank you so much. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. My next guest argues, and I think rightfully so, that Democrats are wrong to demand full unredacted Mueller report. The federal law prohibits grand jury information from being made public, and if this report by Mueller has grand jury information in it, the Justice Department has an obligation to go through and redact it. There's also concern about national security and uh, intelligence methods being revealed. we will here to talk with us about that and the request that's been, well, the demand that's been made for an unredacted version of the Mueller report, Hans von Spikoff is a manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Georgine, thanks for having me back.
2: Well, the demand has been made. In fact, I think the deadline has come and gone, or it may be today that the unredacted version of the Mueller report must be given uh, to Democrats in uh, uh, in the House and Senate. That's not going to happen. And perhaps those of us who aren't directly connected don't fully understand why the redaction is uh, is done and why uh, it's necessary. Can you explain?
4: Sure, and I have to say, look, I think what's going on here is partisan grandstanding uh, for a particular reason, and that's to try to set up a, a false claim that there's a cover-up going on. Here's, here's the deal on this. Um, look, this, this was a prosecutor's report to the attorney general. Um, I, we get reports like that in other cases, too. But uh, under federal law, Uh, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6, grand jury materials, grand jury information, uh, grand jury documents are all secret. They have to be kept confidential. And in fact, uh, it's a crime for, uh, for those to be disclosed, including by government prosecutors. So the Democrats who, you know, issued this subpoena for this, look, they know they're, they're not foolish. They've got good staff lawyers. Uh, they know that the attorney general cannot simply turn over this report to them without first going through it and redacting um, any grand jury material. So, you know, why would they issue the subpoena when they know that that would be a violation of federal law, something the attorney general can't, uh, can't weigh? Well, I think it's so that they can make this false claim that it's a cover-up. The, the other thing that they've got to do, Going through this is, uh, remember, this started off as a counterintelligence operation. Remember, they went to the secret FISA court to, to apply for and get electronic surveillance warrants. That only happens in espionage and terrorism cases. And, in fact, um, the, the letter that Barr sent to uh, Congress, uh, kind of giving a, a summary of the report, mentioned the fact that amongst his 60-member staff, were intelligence analysts. What that means is they have to go through the report and make sure that there isn't any information in there that would compromise our intelligence methods or our national security um, uh, concerns. And, again, that's something that is, is something that's done all the time in, in other routine cases.
2: Now, Judiciary Chairman Nadler is being accused of hypocrisy on the Mueller report, and there's been vintage video that surfaced from the Clinton days in which he argued just the opposite of what he's arguing now. Are these two things comparable, and can a case be made that he has reversed himself in this case with regard to the Mueller report?
4: Oh, yeah, I I think very much uh, that he has. And, And it's also a reversal of something much more recent. Look, the third thing that I think ought to be done with this report is that if there's any derogatory information in the report, in other words, unproven accusations, uh, matters that were not sufficient uh, to, to bring a prosecution, uh, I think that also should be taken out. That would be in accordance with Justice Department rules and protocols, prosecutors when they decline to prosecute someone uh, are not supposed to then hold press releases in which they disclose derogatory information about the person they just declined to prosecute and remember that's exactly what james comey did and democrats were demanding that he be fired for doing that
2: so is this just a matter of theater i mean they've gone so far as to issue subpoenas uh, how should we interpret this? And is there any penalty for demanding something that cannot be done?
4: No, there's no penalty. But I think what's going on here is, is look, um, the claim that they've been making for the last two years, uh, it turned out to be a hoax. The whole collusion, obstruction of justice claim. So they've basically seen a collapse of this uh, mythical narrative that they've been weaving uh, uh, for the public and the press. So I think they're trying to regain ground by now trying to set up another false narrative, which is that, ooh, there's – there's really something there, but there's a cover-up going on by not disclosing the entire report. I, I think that's the kind of political grandstanding that they're engaging in.
2: Now we're being told that the Attorney General Barr can't be trusted, that he somehow has, in his uh, initial uh, letter, uh, misled. And now we're, we're reading that there were members of the Mueller team who thought the, uh, uh, that Mueller did not uh, give sufficient weight to some of the more critical elements uh, of the uh, the president and his team, sort of undermining confidence in the outcome of this two-year investigation that resulted in the Mueller report that we've been told will be released by mid-April, if not sooner, with the necessary legal redactions.
4: Well, what I would say about that is that if this is based on leaks coming from lawyers inside uh, the special counsel's office Everyone should realize that they are engaging in blatantly unethical and unprofessional behavior by making such leaks. And any lawyer who would engage in that kind of unprofessional uh, and unethical uh, 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 conduct, uh, I have to be a bit cynical about whether I would trust uh, their judgment on these kind of issues.
2: Now, initially, we were told that you must wait for the Mueller report, that this is going to be the be-all, end-all that will expose the president for uh, the collusion that he is responsible for. There was an effort before the report came out, as it became clear that it was soon to be released, that uh, the Mueller report was going to be underwhelming and now to undermine the credibility of the whole thing. This seems to indicate that for the next... Um, next year as we anticipate the presidential election that this is going to be a continued focus
4: it is but I think um, I think democratic leadership is going to be making a big mistake if they uh, if they try to do that because I think the American people I think the public um, if they continue to pursue, this what turns out to be false story of collusion, um, I think the American people are going to look at that and they're going to feel that it's not only unfair and unjust, but that the the Democrats are engaging in political persecution. And that, I think, could actually hurt them uh, in in the next
2: election. So the Mueller report is expected to be released in the next week or so. Um, It will be it will have all the necessary redactions. What do you anticipate will happen at that point?
4: Oh, I think that um, uh, those who who are political opponents of the president will try to uh, pick, <laughs> excuse me, pick and choose, you know, bits and pieces out of the report to try to reconstitute this this story that they've uh, been pushing for the last two years. But I think people should remember something else. Keep in mind that this is the third report of the third investigation of the whole Russian collusion. uh, Allegation because remember, both the U.S. House Intelligence Committee and the U.S. House Senate Committee extensively investigated this, also, and both committees issued reports just like uh, what Barr says the Mueller report uh, says, which is there was no evidence whatsoever of any kind of collusion or coordination between. The Russian government and the Trump campaign.
2: Well, we will just wait and see. The report will be released, and presumably we'll have access to it. Hans von Spakovsky, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, unable to work out a bipartisan deal to speed up the president's uh, nominees, the uh, Senate Republican majority changed the chamber's rules on Wednesday to shorten debate time over the objections of their Democratic colleagues. Well, the move qualifies as a nuclear option maneuvered by the GOP to override a Democratic filibuster, and it marks another step taken in uh, recent years to diminish the power of the Senate minority. Now, that happened when the Democrats... We're in the minority and it was um, the minority leader at the time. Uh, who established this process. Senate Republicans and Democrats have already moved to eliminate the 60-vote threshold needed to confirm cabinet members and judges, including Supreme Court justices, in response to partisan obstruction tactics that have increased over the years. Now, lawmakers in both parties warned the Senate should not go any further to strip the chamber's traditional minority leverage with further changes to the rules such as the elimination of the 60-vote threshold needed to pass legislation, which some 2020 Democratic presidential candidates Said they support. Now, the problem is it may be an advantage to you now, but when the tables are turned, it will certainly be a disadvantage, and you keep chipping away at these uh, rules. And pretty soon, there are no rules to hold back the tide of partisan politics in the Senate, which was supposed to be the more deliberative body. The partisan temperament, says Senator Michael Bennett, a Democrat out of Colorado is destroying this place, it needs to come to an end. He's absolutely right. Well, the latest change was invoked by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said Democrats are needlessly dragging out debates, stalling Trump nominees, creating a large backlog, and preventing the president from assembling his administration uh, administrative team. That's also true. Well, McConnell made the move to shorten the debate time after the Senate voted to proceed with the nomination of Jeffrey Kessler to serve as Assistant Secretary of Commerce. He called, it the, uh, f- called the effort, rather, to confirm Kessler a textbook case study of the shameful nature of the current process. Now, Democrats delayed Kessler's consideration in committee by seven months. Then they stalled a vote on his confirmation, but by another six months, once his nomination actually reached uh, the, uh, the, the Senate. Well, this systematic obstruction, McConnell says, is unfair to our duly elected president. And more importantly, it is disrespectful to the American people who deserve the government they elected. I fixed it, though, uh, to um, say the change will slash debate uh, by 30 hours for sub-Cabinet-level executive branches later that afternoon, Senate Republicans... A plan to shorten debate time needed to confirm district court judges as well. Well, the change elicited strong opposition from Senate Democrats, even though it mirrored a bipartisan deal to temporarily shorten debate time that lawmakers struck under the Democratic majority in 2013. Again, what goes around comes around, but it isn't always the best thing for the country. Democrats now believe that the shortened debate time will hamper their ability to carefully consider Trump picks, who, in their view, may not be qualified for the federal bench or administrative roles. That's what the Republicans argued when the Democrats did the same and were in the majority in 2013. We've seen nominees who have never been in a courtroom and are being nominated to lifetime judgeships, says Senator Patrick Leahy, a top lawmaker on the Judiciary Committee. Senator Ron Wyden said the Trump administration is responsible for the opposition from Democrats because it's offered unqualified or politically extreme candidates. Now, again, the excuses change depending on whose ox is being gored. Pick better nominees and you will uh, have our support, Wyden said. Well, that's simply not true. But Senator Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, said Republicans were moving to destroy the rules of the Senate to speed along far-right judicial picks to adopt a far-right agenda Republicans know they cannot enact through the legislative process. And of course, it was argued just the opposite when the Democrats were in the majority and they wanted their nominees to be moved through more quickly. Well, Schumer said Trump has nominated unqualified people, as his colleagues did, um, to the federal bench. He cited as examples Thomas Farr and Ryan Bounds, who were defeated with the help of the GOP after background investigations, found evidence each in the past had engaged in actions deemed hurtful toward minorities. Two hours for a lifetime appointment with huge influence on people's lives is unacceptable, Schumer said, calling it, Ridiculous. Now, apparently it wasn't quite as outrageous when it benefited the Democrats. And again, it goes back and forth depending on whose ox is being gored. Republicans made the case that Democrats have imposed historic delays on White House nominations, uh, even those they do not oppose, leaving picks for the federal bench and sub-cabinet level officials waiting months and, in some cases, years for confirmation. And they pointed to the many nominees Democrats delayed by requiring the clock to run out on all 30 hours of debate time, then voting in favor of the confirmation. Games senators play. Well, the GOP over the past two years has sought to... Uh, Uh, deal with Democrats to resuscitate the bipartisan uh, accord struck in 2013 to lower debate time. But Democrats said it couldn't be implemented until after the next presidential election, when Trump might be replaced by a Democrat. Again, who benefits? That's what we'll do. Democrats are delaying Trump nominees out of opposition to Trump's 2016 victory. McConnell said just because they wish our president was not our president. Well, again i point to this as an example of why people are frustrated with and have less regard for um politicians in washington and i'm not going i'm not going to go into that we'll just move on Well, a police officer, um, well, I'll start here. The uh, Supreme Court's um, debate yesterday on death penalty seemed a bit absurd. The headline said the justices of the Supreme Court were openly feuding and sniping at one another over the death penalty. What they were, in fact, doing was nibbling around the edges of the ongoing debate across the country. Now, some opponents of the death penalty wish to see the Supreme Court declare the, the uh, penalty unconstitutional altogether. And they're not too picky about how uh, how we get that done. Not uh, jurisprudence, but jurispretext, as one uh, Ken Williamson put it. Well, the problem with that is that the Constitution itself categorically sanctions capital punishment. For instance, by specifying in the Fifth Amendment certain limitations on the conditions in which a person may be deprived. Now we're talking about the debate over whether or not an individual who has been sentenced to death has a a guarantee that that will not be an uncomfortable or painful process for them. Whatever cruel and unusual punishment means in the Eighth Amendment, no one involved in the drafting of that language or the ratification of the Constitution believe that it prohibited capital punishment. Says Damon Root, author of Overruled, The Long War for Control of the U.S. Supreme Court. Like it or not, the death penalty is constitutional. He says we should not pretend the Constitution is silent or ambivalent about the basic existence of the practice. Now, states can decide whether or not they're going to implement it, but there's no question that it is constitutional. The current Supreme Court action regarding the death penalty from a legal point of view amounts to a little more than trivia. In some states, only prison employees can be present in the death chamber, which means that if there is a Christian or Muslim chaplain on the prison staff, he may be physically present, but a Buddhist or Zoroastrianism, uh, Zoro, Zoroastrian rather, may be denied similar consolation if there is no affiliated uh, clergyman on the, uh, the premises or on the payroll. Now, that case would be... Uh, Of Scant interest, if not for its intersection with the issue of capital punishment. Another case involves a man who suffers from a rare disease that, according to his lawyer, would cause him to endure horrifying pain if he were to be put to death via lethal injection. Likewise, that case has little to do with the merits or acceptability of capital punishment as such, but that was the case that the court, the the jurists were arguing. There's a long history of this sort of thing when it comes to the death penalty. The Furman case found the Supreme Court handing down a national moratorium on executions and an intellectually and legally incoherent decision. It was a 5-4 case with five different majority opinions based on the uh, nebulous considerations of arbitrariness and loosely defined. Discrimination. Well, most of the popular arguments against the death penalty are like most investment advice and Republican campaign promises. I want to believe and I'm inclined to do so, but they do not stand uh, up to much scrutiny. That applies to politicians and politics in general. It may very well be the case that an innocent man will be sentenced to death, but that also is an argument against incarceration, speeding tickets and much else. An execution cannot be undone, but neither can the damage from 40 years wrongful incarceration. The irreversibility of the death penalty is an argument for prudence in its use, as indeed we must be prudent in all cases where the state is responsible for Uh, imposing violence. Well, this is the challenge that the U S Supreme court was undertaking when it uh, made the decision of whether or not a painful execution, as in the case of this individual should move forward uh, while others wanted to see this broaden into a challenge to the constitutionality of the death penalty at all. As we know, the decision came down and uh, justice Gorsuch was one who came down in favor of permitting the, uh, the prison to inject the uh, the prisoner, even though it may result in a painful death for him. By the way, the individual who will be executed by that means, apparently, was responsible for the murder of several people, and pain was not an issue at the time those took place. 29 minutes after 5 o'clock, when we come back, we're going to talk about some things that are going on in the Oregon legislature. What do you think about permanent daylight saving time? Hmm. Senate voted today. We'll let you know what they came up with. And much more. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Thirty five minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Hey, by the way, we want to give away our final our final fandango gift certificate. You want me to wait, Clark? No, I have to give away two today because I yeah. So we're going to give away our final um, uh, Fandango gift certificate today, and then we'll give away our last one tomorrow. So we're giving away a $25 Fandango gift certificate to see the movie Unplanned in theaters now. Okay, so this is our final Fandango gift certificate for the day to see the movie Unplanned. I'm glad that Clark and I have sorted that out, so we'll be able to do that. Um, Unplanned is... uh, in. Theaters right now, it's the gripping true story of a woman's journey of transformation started out as a Planned Parenthood employee, saw an actual abortion, and you can imagine the rest of that story. We're partnering with Dr. James Dobson, who's been leading this conversation on this serious and difficult subject for over 40 years, and we're pleased that you can listen to his program, Family Talk, every weekday right here on KPDQ from 3 to 3 30, so check that out. All right. We want to give this away to caller number three. Again, a twenty five dollar Fandango gift certificate to see the movie Unplanned, which is in theaters right now. The number to call 800-845-2162. That's 800-845-2162. And uh, we'll be giving away our final for the week uh, Fandango gift certificate tomorrow on Friday. Now that we've got that all cleared up. Well, the Oregon Senate has approved a measure to abolish the yearly time change and remain on daylight saving time like it or not. They've done it. Well, lawmakers uh, today voted 23 to 4 to skip returning to standard time every fall. Areas in Oregon that are in the mountain time zone are exempt, and they're going to still need to reset their clocks every year. Only a part of uh, one eastern county in Oregon is on mountain time. The rest of the state is contained in the Pacific time zone. The measure is going to be sent to the House for consideration, so it's not a done deal, but it is in the Senate. Governor Brown has signaled that uh, she supports the permanent daylight saving time switch, or not switch, which an effort that gained considerable momentum and even uh, got the approval of President Trump. The Democrat um, previously told reporters that the time chain issue is one of a uh, very few issues that she and President Trump see eye to eye on. So this is uh, practically a kumbaya moment, although not not really. And Oregon regulators have disclosed the deaths of two children in licensed daycares that were not previously reported to the public. The big question is why? Well, the Oregonian and Oregon Live reported yesterday that the state failed to disclose the deaths in 2011 and 2012 until this week. This is 2019. And until uh, last month, um, uh, did not disclose the death of a third child in August of 2018. Well, the State Office of Child Care officials said that the deaths occurred in at Little Rascals, a Portland daycare, in January of 2011 and Annie's Kids in Clackamas Daycare in 2012. And according to the Oregonian, Little Rascals was renamed and then closed in 2015. Annie's Kids remains licensed. Well, the Oregonian reached out to that daycare on Tuesday night, but the message wasn't immediately uh, returned. Well, spokesperson for the Oregon Office of Child Care told the Oregonian that the failure to disclose the deaths was due to a failure in a state tracking system. She said the deaths of a child at a Eugene daycare in August of 2018 was not initially disclosed due to guidance from the Eugene Police Department. The Oregonian reported that a total of 12 children in licensed Oregon child care facilities have died since 2008. Well, Oregon has uh, jumped on the bandwagon when it comes to the Electoral College. If you appreciate and understand the purpose of the Electoral College, which establishes the United States as a republic and not a democracy, um, you may want to communicate with those lawmakers in Salem. Well, tapping into Democratic anger over the country's election process, Oregon is joining a number of Democrat-controlled states in pursuing a workaround to the Electoral College and switch to a popular vote model. Now, the Senate Rules Committee voted four to one on Wednesday, which paves the way for a full floor vote on whether the state should join the National Vote Interstate Compact. It's a pledge between states to give their electoral votes to whomever wins the national popular vote. Uh, it's a way of effectively bypassing the Electoral College without actually amending the Constitution, which is the way we are supposed to make these kinds of changes. It's a system that's been criticized following the 2016 presidential election, and I'm referring to the Electoral College. President Trump became the second Republican in five elections to win the presidency through the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. It's happened only twice in the 21st century, and Abraham Lincoln was actually elected under the same circumstance. Well, candidates in the uh, crowded race for next year... Year's Democratic presidential nomination have backed the move to overhaul the electoral process. Senate Democrats have also introduced a constitutional amendment to scrap the system, but that, of course, is a very long process that requires the approval of many states. But it's likely to hit a dead end in the deeply divided Congress. Constitutional amendment and country, I would add, deeply divided country. Constitutional amendments have to be passed by two thirds of both houses, and then they need to be ratified by three fourths of the states. It's tedious, but that's why uh, that's the way the Constitution is supposed to be amended. But this is uh, sort of a workaround that we're seeing now. Well, the National Vote Interstate Compact wouldn't require a constitutional change. States would pledge they would agree to give all their electoral votes to whomever wins the national popular vote in theory that could mean democratic states would be bound to give all their electoral votes for uh, to a Dem- to a Republican rather if that candidate received the most votes nationally now, that may be rather distasteful to a Democrat state like Oregon if for example um, we see the uh, popular vote go for a, uh, a Republican. Um, It would only go into effect when enough states join the 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 number necessary. It would have to reach 270 electoral votes, the threshold needed to win the White House. Let me repeat that. It would only go into effect when enough states join to reach 270 electoral votes. Now, each state is assigned a certain number of electoral votes, so there have to be enough states who have signed on to this national vote interstate compact, and their combined total would have to reach... Or exceed 270 for this to go into effect. That's the threshold needed to win the White House. Well, opponents of the Electoral College say that the system gives an extraordinary amount of power to a handful of swing states where presidential hopefuls spend the most of their money and attention. As saying, uh, and this is a quote from Ricardo. Uh, Valerio from the uh, policy associate with the ACLU Oregon by ensuring that each vote has an equal impact on the outcome of the presidential election. National popular vote gives each citizen equal power in elections, regardless of the state where the voter lives. What it does do, however, is diminish the influence of some of the smaller states and increases the influence of the coasts. And I I think I can uh, argue that you're going to see candidates avoiding parts of the country where they are simply uh, not needed where the population isn't as great, and the very thing that was hoped for uh, will be the very thing that's not accomplished. That was oddly put together, but you get the idea. Well, the combat uh, compact, rather, that started over a decade ago is only 81 electoral votes short of its goal. 14 states plus the District of Columbia have signed on to the agreement so far, and in fact, there was one more state, uh, New Mexico, uh, uh, has joined the popular vote compact. Uh, as well. So that number actually may have increased. I'm not sure if this number reflects that one, but 14 states plus the District of Columbia have signed on to the agreement. So far, Oregon's enactment would mean another seven votes toward the 270 vote threshold. Ohio and historic swing State popular campaign stop is also considering joining the compact, which would contribute another 18 electoral votes. I can tell you if um, these votes ultimately in some election in the future end up going to a Republican, my guess is this whole thing will ultimately dissolve, but we'll see. Supporters of the electoral college include smaller, more rural states, which uh, fear scrapping the system would mean candidates would pay more attention to densely populated areas to secure the maximum uh, number of votes. I would predict that will be the case. Senator Shamia Fagan, a Democrat from Portland, said that switching to a popular vote model actually enhances the voices of rural voters. Mm, That's not how the founders saw it. She says especially those in populist states. Well, yeah, populist states. She said that Republicans in Oregon often feel inconsequential because the state's large Democratic base makes its electoral outcome a near foregone conclusion. For the first time, it would actually be one person, one vote, she said. It would actually give Republicans in Oregon a voice, voice rather, in our national presidential election. So um, it doesn't matter how the state might vote in and of itself, depending on who gains the popular vote in general in the national election. Those votes would then go to that individual. So I'm not so sure how that accomplishes the goal that's so often stated. But candidates in the crowded race uh, for the Democratic presidential nomination are for the most part, in favor of that move, and we seem to be moving in that direction. Again, the threshold, 270 electoral votes uh, would have to be secured from states. Uh, I mentioned New Mexico uh, has rejected the Electoral College. They've joined the popular vote uh, compact. Democratic Governor Michelle Luan Grisham signed legislation yesterday, officially joining a group of states agreeing to elect the president by popular vote and uh, adding HB 55 to the governor's list of signed legislation uh, she confirmed that New Mexico is the 14th state to join the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact the measure passed through both chambers of the New Mexico legislature with no republican votes according to the state's website you're listening to the Georgine Rice show we'll be back to wrap things up
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ
2: we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this was an interesting story, although it's a tragic one. A DNA testing is underway for a young man named Timothy Pitson. At least that's what we think his name was. It's the case of a teenager found in Kentucky who says he is a long-missing Illinois boy who disappeared at age six. Well, DNA testing, as I mentioned, was ordered today on a uh, this teenager who... Uh, Showed up in Kentucky rather confused. In fact, he was seen by people who lived in the area as someone who looked like they might be up to some sort of mischief. Well, it turns out that he had escaped his captors, as he described them, and didn't quite know what to do. Anyway, he claims to be the long-missing Timothy Pitson, uh, who told officials he'd escaped the kidnappers who'd held him hostage for more than seven years. Now, the teen was located in Newport, Kentucky, early Wednesday by residents there who spotted him in their neighborhood, and they suspected that he might be looking to steal something. But when they approached him, he told them an incredible story. He was reported missing in May of 2011. His mother, Amy Fry-Pitson, she picked up the six-year-old from school in Aurora, Illinois, took him for a two-day trip to a zoo and water park. Then Fry-Pitson, the mother took her own life in a Rockford hotel room. Now, we don't know if the boy was present at the time. One can only imagine what that must have been like. But Timothy was nowhere to be found when she was found. There was a cryptic note, and they believe it was written by the mother, who had been found in the room um And claimed that she left her son with people who would care for him. Now, it's entirely possible that she didn't end her own life, that her life was taken from her. But again, the boy was missing. You'll never find him, the note read, according to local media. Well, on Wednesday, Sharon Hall, who said she spotted this 14-year-old boy wandering the block, said that she thought he was trying to steal from her uh, neighbor's car. Um, from out the window, I couldn't see who was standing in the curb, but I looked out and came back in and there was a young man standing by my neighbor's car. The way he was acting, he was fidgety. He was moving around. He was looking in her car. Well, she says, and this is the neighbor said she eventually got in touch with her neighbor and found two other women already speaking to the teen. Apparently they were all home and looking out. The woman called police after the teen told her he was Pitson, and had just escaped from two kidnappers who had held him hostage for seven years. Now, the only description, according to police reports, that the young man gave were were, these were two men, and they were very muscular bodybuilders. That's how he described them. We have this child who says he's a runaway, uh, or at least has runaway, uh, says he was kidnapped, and we found him. It looks like back in 2011, he was kidnapped or abducted. Last name Pitson, first name Timothy. If you Google it, It will pop up. It'll pop right up. The Campbell County dispatcher said, well, the teen described his captors as two men with bodybuilder physiques and said they were traveling in a Ford SUV with Wisconsin license plates. According to Sharonville police uh, in their incident report, one had black curly hair, um, Mountain Dew shirt and jeans and has a spider web tattoo on his arm. The other uh, was of short stature and apparently had a, um, uh, a snake tattoo on his arms, plural. While well, the teen told police he and his kidnappers were staying in a red roof inn in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in that area when he managed to escape running across a bridge until he reached Kentucky. Well, the FBI, Aurora police, several other agencies rushed to meet the 14-year-old on Wednesday to confirm that he really was the missing Illinois boy. While well, the teen was taken to Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, authorities ordered a DNA test. Officials hope to have the results at some point before the day has ended. We've probably had thousands of tips of him popping up in different areas, according to the police. We have no idea what we've driven uh, down there for it could be Pitson, it could be a hoax. Well, Timothy's grandmother, who is still living, said on Wednesday that the authorities had told the family very little but that they'd found a boy who identified himself as the uh, once six-year-old who was um, who had disappeared. We just know a 14-year-old boy was found and went to the police, she says. We don't want to get our hopes up or our family hopes up until we know something. We just don't want to get uh, you know our hopes up, she said several times. Well, Anderson also said that very cautiously, they're hopeful the teen is, in fact, her grandson. Uh, well, the uh, DNA test is pending, and sometime before the day is up, we may have uh, the answer as to whether or not this is that boy. Now, it was expected that he was living, uh, but it wasn't at all known uh, if um, you know where he was or what the situation was. Now, James, you're, you're giving me a signal here. What are you telling me?
4: Just within the last uh, small bit of while, they have re- released that there's not a DNA match
2: apparently uh, according to james uh, just in the the last uh, short while they have indicated that this is not a dna match now you wonder how the boy got the name um is probably in the press and um maybe a familiar name to him but apparently he is not that boy so i grieve for the family who once again uh, imagine that perhaps they'll be reunited with uh, this grandson who was abandoned by his mother, whom officials believe took her own life. But under these circumstances, it's not at all clear what actually happened. So the end of that story. But what a what a peculiar turn of events involving this boy who uh, believed himself to be, we assume, this missing boy since 2011. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to taking a look at the lighter side of the news. Certainly, if there's breaking news, we'll cover that. We've... Uh, We make sure to do that on Friday so that you don't miss anything, particularly stories that we have been following. We're going to spend the bulk of the day really focusing on um, the lighter side of the news. So I'm looking forward to that and hope you will join us. Also want to remind you that uh, tomorrow we're going to be giving away our final uh, gift certificate, the $25 Fandango gift certificate to see the movie Unplanned. That is in theaters now. We're partnering with Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk And uh, we'll be giving away our final uh, gift card for that on tomorrow's program. We gave uh, two of those away earlier today. So if you're interested in uh, winning, listen up. We'll do our final giveaway tomorrow. Um, Also wanted to uh, mention that the Oregon Right to Life uh, conference, the Northwest's largest pro-life conference, is this Saturday at Rolling Hills Community Church. If you'd like to register or to find out more, go to OregonRightToLife.com. Again, that's... Coming up this Saturday. I want to thank James Blend for engineering today's program, Clark Hilton for producing. No, did I get that backwards? I got James is producing, Clark is engineering. Yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.